Well, tonight's preaching passage is from the book of 1 Timothy, as we continue our series in the book of 1 Timothy. Um, We're going to be studying in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, which is the end of the chapter. And so you're welcome to open your Bibles there, and I encourage you to keep them open as we um, study together. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. God, as we come to time in your word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear your voice, that you would give me the ability to speak clearly as I ought to speak, and we pray that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm guessing that for many of you, at some point, you've seen a show on HGTV. If you haven't, that's okay, because if you have watched HGTV at all, you'll know that there's pretty much only one kind of show on the entire channel. It's flipping houses. Buying a rundown house, transforming it from the inside out, and selling it at a profit. It's pretty much the only show that there is. Of course, seemingly without fail, the designer or the contractor wants to tear down multiple interior walls and make a large open space inside the house. And for some of these walls, it's not a big deal. They're not load-bearing walls. You just remove the drywall and the studs and it's all good, no harm done. But other walls pose a challenge because they're load-bearing walls. You take those down and the entire house caves in. So you remove the non-load-bearing walls, no big deal, take them or leave them. But those load-bearing ones, those are the key. They're like the pillars of the entire house. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to the young pastor, Timothy, and reminding him of how the church is to get fit to proclaim the gospel, how the church is to be fit for gospel ministry. And as Pastor Josh taught us last week, the letter's framed by these three pillars of gospel ministry. These three things that if you remove them, the whole thing comes crashing down. The first pillar is in our passage in verse 15, which we'll come to in a moment. 
The second pillar comes in chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, Paul writes. And so to get fit for gospel ministry, the, the church of the gospel must have healthy leadership. And then there's the third pillar that comes in chapter 4, four verses 8 and 9. And it's the pillar of godliness and character. Paul writes... For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And so the third pillar of the church of the gospel is that of godliness and character. So there are these three pillars, establishing true doctrine, which is our pillar that comes in our passage for this evening, And right in the middle of the passage is where we see it. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This pillar of the church of the gospel is about establishing true doctrine. In other words, the church of the gospel must be grounded in the truth of the gospel. And this passage breaks down into two sections. And the first is in verses 12 to 17, about standing strong in true teaching. And then in verses 18 to 20, standing strong against false teaching. Because the church of the gospel must be grounded in the truth of the gospel. These pillars, that if you take them down, the whole thing falls apart. And so first standing strong in true teaching in verses 12 to 17. So Paul already began this section in his letter about establishing true doctrine back in verse 3 of the chapter. And that's also where we see one of the main challenges that Timothy was facing in his ministry and one of the main reasons that Paul wrote to him. There were false teachers that had begun teaching some sort of different doctrine um, other than the gospel of God. And so in the midst of these false teachings that were swirling around, Timothy was to stand strong in teaching was true. And so to encourage Timothy in this way, Paul goes back to his own story and his own personal encounter with the grace of God. He begins in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Paul describes himself before meeting Christ. Three key words, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent. There were words he was speaking. There were actions he was taking. There were truths that he was opposing of the true gospel. And we get a fuller picture of this shorthand description that Paul uses with these three words. We, we get a fuller picture in the book of Acts. We learn Paul was one of, the lead, one of those people leading the charge against Christians. He was throwing them in prison, even working to put them to death. He was against Jesus Christ. He was against those who followed Jesus Christ. But then Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You might remember that story where he met Jesus and was changed from the inside out. He went from being a persecutor to a defender. 
from a blasphemer to a truth teller, from an opponent to a comrade. And so how could this kind of man be judged faithful as he says that he was even in the service of God? And he makes it clear it was the Lord Jesus Christ through and through. He had lived in ignorance of the truth of the gospel. He had acted in unbelief of the truth of the gospel. And as he says that, he doesn't mean that he wasn't culpable for his sins. He was, but rather that he had lived in such a way because of his ignorance and unbelief that proved and necessitated that he needed the mercy of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about it this way, that if I'm driving on the road and I miss a change in the speed limit and a police officer pulls me over for speeding, I'm still accountable for the speed I was going. Even if I was in ignorance of what that speed limit was and the officer could pull me over, I could claim ignorance, but if I didn't get a ticket, it would only be because of sheer mercy. I think that's a little bit like what Paul is saying here. He may not quite have known the deep depths of his sinful acts, but he needed sheer mercy nonetheless. And out of the overflowing grace of Jesus Christ, he was given the strength of Jesus Christ, the mercy of Jesus Christ, and the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ, because he had this deep, personal experience of the grace of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And what a powerful thing that is as he shares it with Timothy. The personal experience pulling Timothy in to faithful gospel ministry. At a previous job, I got the opportunity to take a few groups of students up the Sears Tower. I think it's called the Willis Tower now. And they had the observation deck on the 100th floor, 105th floor, whatever it is. And it's cool. You can see the panorama of the city. But they also have these glass boxes that kind of go three or four feet out over the ground. And when you first get up there, you kind of don't want to step on the glass because you step down and you see a thousand foot drop below you. And it usually takes someone going onto that ledge, jumping on it a little bit, and then pulling someone in and saying, this is firm, this will hold. And so Paul was exhorting Timothy and the church of the gospel to stand strong in true teaching because he'd experienced how true it was that had the power to change Stand firm on this, he's saying, this will hold. He's saying, Timothy, stand firm in that too. So Paul had experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, but he knew that the gospel wasn't just for him, but for all people. That was what he was called to on the road, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he moves from his personal experience of the grace of God to what is true for all people who call on the name of the Lord. In verse 15, this amazing saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's amazing. And Paul looks at himself and he says, out of all the sinners, I'm the foremost, the most notorious, the, the worst of them all. 
because Paul knew himself with knife-edge honesty and pinpoint humility. And remember what this is coming off of in verses 9 and 10, where he talks about how the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so you look at this list and you think that's pretty bad. And Paul says, I'm the worst of them all. Genuine honesty. Before we experience the good news part of the gospel, we have to understand what the bad news is first, don't we? We're sinners through and through to our very core. Maybe this is something that you haven't quite considered about yourself before. That you're a sinner through and through to your very core. That you deserve for your sins the punishment of the very judgment of God. It's hard to think of ourselves that way, isn't it? It's not comfortable. I don't think it always should be. It's hard to admit just how bad we are. But that's the way a heart thinks that has understood the grace of Jesus. The story goes that the influential preacher Robert Murray McShane, who was well known for his piety, he was at one point apparently congratulated for being so saintly. And his response was this. If you could see into my heart, you would spit in my face. It's the reality of each one of us, that we're in desperate need of a Savior. The good news is that our trustworthy saying in verse 15 is not just that we're sinners, it's that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. And this is the very heart of the gospel, the very core of what it is. And in fact, it seems that's even what Paul's doing. He's probably using this phrase as a shorthand for the gospel itself, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not for perfect people, not for the righteous, but sinners. Salvation for those who are in desperate need of it. That's good news. And then we see Paul's logic continue to flow into verse 16. And he writes that, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul saw himself as an example that he received mercy so that he, who was the self-described worst of sinners... He was the one who received mercy that he might be an example to others of the patience and mercy of the living God. If God can save me, then surely he can save you. There's not a single person who's outside the reach of God's grace. Not Paul, not you, not even me. We sang it this morning in the services that our sins there are many, his mercy is more. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This 
is true gospel teaching. And it is good, good news, isn't it? And friends, we have to hold on to this kind of teaching with every fiber of our being. It's for us as a church, as a whole church, may this truth of the gospel continue to be spoken and explained and believed and clung to in each and every one of our church ministries. Kids Harbor, to students, to small groups, meeting in homes, to the encouragement you give to one another after and before services. We stand strong in this truth as a whole church. We have it on our steeple and now on the New Crossings building, proclaiming the gospel. Let's continue to stand strong in that, in the way that we speak the gospel as a whole church. I know some of you are teachers or serve in different areas of the church. This is a great reminder for us that we are the church of the gospel. This is what we proclaim. But it's also for us as individuals as well. And I wonder if perhaps these aren't some of the hardest places as individuals even to stand strong in the truth of the gospel because when you look honestly at yourself, we see that we don't measure up. And in those quiet moments, you see your sin clearly and it's overwhelming. Or maybe it's those times where that Same old temptation keeps coming back up again and again and again. And you keep falling for the same sin again and again for the thousand and first time. And you feel that maybe this time it really was the final straw. And that you're just too far gone now. Friends, in moments like those, stand strong in the trustworthy saying of the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come for perfect people. He didn't die for the innocent. The price he paid was not for the sinless, but for the sinful, for the guilty, for sinners like you and me. He came into the world to save sinners. Stand strong in that, even in those kind of moments. And when you do, your heart will ring with praise like Paul's did in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Praise God. He saves sinners, people like us. This is true teaching that we must stand strong in. So the church of the gospel is to stand strong in true teaching But the church of the gospel is also to stand strong against false teaching. And this is in verses 18 to 20. Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. We get this charge that brings us back to Paul's initial one in verses 3 to 5. Paul's instruction there, his charge to Timothy was was this. He writes, to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience 
in a sincere faith. And so Paul, he exhorts Timothy in verse 18. It's, when he does that, it's about standing strong against the false teaching that was going on. And he was entrusting this mission to the young pastor in accordance with the prophecies previously made about him. In other words, Timothy had been set apart for this task. We read in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy not to neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so while we don't know the exact precise situation that Paul's referring to in in verse 18, it's clear that Timothy was somehow, some way, set apart for the task and had been gifted for such, likely with some sort of preaching or teaching gift to do the work of standing strong against false, false teaching. It's kind of work as a battle. It's good warfare, and it requires faith and a good conscience. Faith, this, this deep trust in Christ and in Christ alone, in a good conscience, in obedience to God and his word. Faith and a good conscience are what's necessary. And so on a practical level here, for those of us who trust in the gospel and desire to grow deeper into a life shaped by the gospel, we need to remember those who are in the front lines of this battle against false teaching. So on a really practical level, we have the opportunity to encourage those who labor in preaching and teaching among us. I think especially of our pastor who preaches the gospel to us on a weekly basis. Keep holding the faith. Keep living for Christ. Keep preaching the gospel. We're behind you giving this kind of encouragement to those who are lifting up the word of God, guarding against falsehood and encouraging us in Christ. What an encouragement that would be as warfare is waged. Because not everyone does maintain faith in a good conscience. And Paul brings us up in verses 19 to 20 that some have rejected faith in Christ and a deep obedience to his word, leading to what Paul calls a shipwreck of their faith, walking away completely, walking away from Christ. Shipwreck. I've had the opportunity to sea kayak a few times up in Lake Superior off the coast of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And the water there is so clear you can see down all the way to the bottom of the lake, 20, 30, 40 feet down. And as you paddle along, there are several spots where you can glide over these skeletons of old wooden ships that have sunk to the bottom and are even half buried by sand. Some of these are even 150 feet long. It's kind of eerie as you are floating in an 18-foot kayak on the same waters that shipwrecks such a large vessel. We don't plan to be shipwrecked. We don't plan to make shipwreck of our faith. There's a small willingness to budge in our doctrine here or just a little wiggle room in our obedience to God over there. And just like a boat drifts little by little, you can end up way over here and not even be sure how you got there. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. And then here in verse 20, we hear of at least two particular men who have walked away from the Lord. Hymenaeus, Alexander, there are, there are different opinions about what exactly their error was, but in the end, we probably can't be quite sure. But 
what is clear is that they'd left behind faith and a good conscience. That's what Paul's getting at here. They were teaching falsehood and living falsely. And so Paul says he's handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's striking language. But he's talking about excommunication from the church. It's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.5. He puts it this way there. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved for the day of the Lord. And so a Christian has been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. And Paul's simply saying that these people have walked away from Jesus entirely. He's simply placing them back into the domain of darkness they've already chosen. Which is, of course, a last resort. It's not the first step of church discipline, to be sure. It's only the final step in a long line of pleading, urging, praying, and seeking to love a person who's fallen into some sort of serious sin and error. But even in removing these men from the church, it's keeping with the gospel of grace, because this move is not one to punish, but it's to restore. It's so they may learn not to blaspheme. Because Paul, the former blasphemer, knows that even these false teachers are not beyond restoration. And that is the goal of all church discipline. Not to shame someone, not to drag them through the mud, but to restore them to repentance and faith and a good conscience. Because that's part of what standing strong against false, it's part of what it means to stand strong against false teaching, to stand strongly in true teaching, which is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save even the worst of sinners. So we're to stand strong in true teaching, to stand strong against false teaching, because the church of the gospel must be grounded in the truth of the gospel. This pillar that can't be removed. And so to close, throughout the past several days, the first verse of Amazing Grace has kept coming to my mind. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So may we trust, may we believe, and worship our Lord, the God of all grace. Let's pray together. God, we do recognize that we are in desperate need of you. We are sinners to our core, but that you sent Christ to save, and we praise you for it. We confess that we need you and can confess you as the one who gives us salvation through Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us deep faith in him in the easy moments and in the difficult, that you would give us strength to trust in the truth of the gospel and not anything else. We pray for this church that you would continue to give us the strength as a church to do that as well. 
And we pray that as we go forward, we ourselves, as members of the church, would be ones who trust deeply in this truth as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.